Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. The power of Christ compels you! 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 you. Alright, welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Josh. I'm Alex. I'm Daryl. And we have a special today, guest with us, Pastor Robbie Willis. This is uh, Demonology with Robbie. I was trying to make that sound a little more, uh, right? You know, eloquacious, but uh, I guess not. So we, uh, you, uh, just so folks, because we've not had you on the podcast, have we? No, I don't think so. Yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are, what you do. Um, why maybe you got asked to do this? <laughs> sure. So I am uh, a discipleship pastor in Arkansas. Of course, you and I did our undergrad together back a thousand years ago now, something like that. And uh, I have uh, married, got six kids. And, uh, you know, when I was about 19 years old, Pastor Darrell, you'll, you'll remember this story. So I had basically been given the idea that there was not much demonic activity in the United States of America. That was my overall idea growing up. And so I was traveling as an evangelist while going through undergraduate Bible college at the time and went uh, to preach at this church and this demon started manifesting and cast it out. And I came back and if I remember right, I looked at you, I think it was in Starner's class and said, so I was of the opinion that demons couldn't swim the ocean until now. That's right. That's but evidently right. we've got some of those here in the U.S. So what are we going to do about that? Yeah, they, they can't swim the Atlantic. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They're somewhere else. Yeah, so I remember that. Yeah. Here we are, you know, 20 several years later and still asking the question, what are we going to do about that? So I am yeah. currently in a doctor of ministry program and my my focus, my research focus is on helping equip pastors understand how to deal with apparent demonic activity. And I say apparent because sometimes what we're dealing with is true demonic activity. Sometimes it's it's psychological disorders and things that may be more medical in nature. Right. And uh, I think I think the Word of God equips us to discern between those things, and hopefully to offer help regardless of what the circumstance is, because, uh, you know, we're not called to just say, well, I can't help you. The, the power of Christ, as you just cited, compels us. Yeah, to right. Yeah, well, you know, it's not everything's demons, right? I mean, Scripture is pretty clear about making the differentiation there. Right. Um, if there was, if it was, if, if every problem we had was demonic, you know, Jesus wouldn't send the apostles out with authority to heal diseases. Right. It would just say authority over unclean spirits. And that's, there's a distinction. Yeah. So um, it was, it's been the stuff you've been working on as, as we've talked, uh, the material you've been reading, because you've been reading for, for the degree specifically, your, your studies, a whole host of um, different topics, like different writers coming right. from different perspectives. And so one of the things I thought we could discuss today, because the kind of stuff that we get asked here. Um, and that comes into to my email account since, since Josh happily gives out my email address at the end of each one of these. 
<laughs> is is the stuff that relates specifically to um, across those those perspectives, the things that are consistent and sure. the things that are that are a little different. Um, and then and then I thought we could get into um, just the how, how do you differentiate, you know, some practical means of differentiation between right. what is really something that's specifically diabolic and what is something that is bad pizza, yeah, you know, moldy beverages, uh, men mental sickness, you know, th th there's so much that, that could be at work. Um, yeah. So I, I figured we'd start there. So if you've got, if you've got a, 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 I wouldn't say a quick list reference, but let's say, you know, Alex is out, you know, on the street and he's just walking around and somebody drops at his feet and begins thrashing about because most people say, well, that never happens to me, but you and I both know that we've been in scenarios where if we were preaching or even just doing some some prayer ministry, suddenly the person that we're speaking to radically changes, like the, the shape of their face starts to contort. I mean, their body starts jerking around, and and I, I'm I don't know about you, but when that for me, I'm like, well, okay, sure. what do I do now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I think first of all, when that happens, that actually clears up a lot of the questions that uh, that you may have. So it depends on when you look at how do we assess, am I dealing with a demonic entity or not? It depends on what the front end of that looks like. So for instance, it could be that we're preaching in a church, somebody comes to the altar, and quickly it's very evident that we have a demonic manifestation. That's usually not too difficult to figure out. If you're out on the street, and as you said, somebody starts screaming at you in a voice that's clearly not their own, and they know information about you that they couldn't know, it's pretty evident we're dealing with a demon. Alternatively, uh, you know, I, I do a, a fair amount of pastoral counseling, and mm -hmm. so if somebody comes in the office and they are describing their experience and things they're dealing with, it can be a little bit more challenging to discern what's what. And, and actually, something that's pretty consistent when you read Exorcist is that if somebody walks into your office and says, Pastor, I think that I'm being tormented by a demon, they're probably not me, actually. Now, yeah. that's not 100%, but many exorcists would actually say that openly saying and believing yourself to be afflicted by a demon may actually be a contraindication of demonic activity that may be more consistent with some type of of mental disorder because um, they hide right i mean like demons themselves don't want to be discovered yeah demons are very yeah. reclusive they don't want to be discovered especially in the presence of someone who is going to cast them out their intent is going to be to stay hidden to stay withdrawn yeah, yeah. whereas it's well established that a variety of mental disorders predispose people to believing that they have a demon mm-hmm What's been some of the most uh, insightful things that you've gotten, say, in the past six months uh, sure. doing this research? Yeah. You know, one is something that I guess I, I knew, but but reading it from one author after another across at least seven different faith traditions and 13. Can you tell us what those are, by the way? Like this, so people know. Who, you know sure. I, I mean, you can give names if you want to, but just in general. Yeah. So I've been reading. Uh, I've been reading works by Roman Catholic authors, by Anglicans, Lutherans, Baptist, Charismatic, um, a, a work by a, a Methodist minister, 
And then there's that one that's by someone that I can't think if I was, because I'm talking to you right now and it's not available to my brain, but it will come back oh. in a little bit. Um, but the the bulk of, of, of research now, I would identify myself as a classic Pentecostal and you'll notice that I did not mention any Pentecostal writings. And the reason is because there is a disturbing absence of writing actually on this subject from a classic Pentecostal tradition. What I found is this, is that on the one side, I would say that more meaty, the more substantive works that are being written are coming from Roman Catholics and from Anglican authors. Uh, and while I would in some ways identify pretty closely with some aspects of charismatic thinking, unfortunately, a lot of what I'm reading from a charismatic perspective is really not that helpful. It's, it's a regurgitation of a lot of the same stuff. One thing that I think has really been impressed on me is the need for caution and making a real assessment of what is taking place and realizing that some things we may call demonic manifestations are actually more consistent with um, physical or psychological experiences that may be induced by the demonic or they may not be. So one of the big things I guess has been impressed on me through the readings is to make sure that we're looking for true preternatural signs. That, that is some indication that what we're dealing with is otherworldly in nature and, yeah. and, and not just something that could be the person's own uh, the person's own mind that's playing tricks on them. I would never say that that people experiencing things are not real, but some things that people sincerely believe to be demonic aren't. Although maybe there's some demonic influence. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came so we might have eternal life. There are things that the devil may be trying to tear the person down, but that doesn't mean the experience is consistent with a demonic entity that's really moved in and taken over significant portions of that person's life. Yeah, like if uh, you're, you know, some sort of personality disorder the person has doesn't have to have a diabolic root, but it doesn't mean that the enemy won't exploit it. In That's the same right. way that he does for other physical issues. Yeah. Um, they're, they're do you think that, that one of the reasons for a lack of uh, writing from the traditional Pentecostal perspective on this is, I, I don't think this is a loaded question. I don't mean it that way if it sounds that way. Do you think it's because there is a lack of appreciation for mental illness? I, I do think that's a very real, real issue. But not only that, I think that a lot of Pentecostals do not feel personally qualified, even if they do understand mental illness, to mm. speak to what may be mental illness and, and what may be demonic in nature. In Pentecostal circles, historically, there was a tendency to identify any type of mental disorder as demonic. That's changing in our ranks yeah. on a very significant level. Nonetheless, I think now what you have is some people saying, okay, well, how do I, how do I mm. really know the difference? And one thing I have found through this, this research in the last several months is that while there are some similarities between demonic activity and some mental disorders, there are noted differences as well. And, like and the preternatural stuff you were talking about? Yes. And not only that, but for instance, in schizophrenia, everyone knows that if somebody has schizophrenia may hear voices. But what I've learned is that schizophrenics hear voices differently than someone that's hearing those from 
uh, from a demon, meaning that, so T. Craig Isaacs, he's an Anglican author, and he lays out some real good parameters for understanding what is wholly other than, than ourselves. And so one of the things he talks about is that if someone is demonically afflicted and they're hearing voices from that spirit, there is a high degree of clarity in their mind of what that demon is saying. Whereas a schizophrenic is often going to experience things more in a dreamlike state, and those experiences will become less real and more disorienting over time. Whereas the presence of, a, of an evil spirit, if somebody had an encounter with a demon, they can probably tell you what happened two years later as easily as they could at that moment. It's as real as this conversation we're having right here. And there's a lot of things as you look at various mental disorders that, yeah, there's some similarities, but there are noted distinctions as well. There's there's no obscurity in that sense. Correct. Yeah. Mm. If I recall correctly, weren't you reading a, a one of these, uh, I don't want to call it deliverance books, but one of the guys writing about this topic is an atheist. Sure. And believes in possession, but not demonic possession. Absolutely. His name is Dr. Stephen Diamond. Uh, Diamond is a a depth psychologist. In fact, he would he would say that he's trying to redeem depth psychology in some ways. For anybody that's not familiar with the terms, uh, he is looking at some of the some of the writings of C.G. Young and some of these others. But he's taking a new, a fresh look at it and saying, okay, we need to really evaluate the writings of people like Young, who did believe that people had a spirit. Uh, and, and take a look at that. Right. So Diamond is a protege of Rollo May, and Diamond writes about what he calls the diamonic. Of course, diamonic is taken from the Greek word from which we get the word demon in the New Testament. And he... Spell that for us. Spell that for our listeners. Yeah. yeah so D-A-I-M-O-N would be the Greek word diamond, and I'm saying diamonic, so D-A-I-M-O-N-I-C. And... Right. He draws the distinction because in classical Greek thought, a diamonic is not necessarily the same as demonic. That is, separate from the New Testament, the word can be used either positively or negatively. It can speak of an angel. It can speak of a demon. It can speak of an energy that flows within somebody. Uh, love, hate, uh, eros, anything that has the ability to take over the human mind, Dr. Diamond would view as diamonic in nature, but not necessarily demonic. Nonetheless, he speaks very favorably of exorcism and does not for one second deny that it works. He views it as you know, that, that the prototype thing, for psychotherapy. <laughs> yeah, that whole idea speaks, I, I mean, I think it can speak to people who become suddenly overwhelmed with a sense, like fits of rage yeah. or with, uh, you know, some kind of uh, uh, destructive powers of lust. You know, these guys yep. get that are so addicted to pornography and stuff. Um because it, there's a, there's something that's taking over the mental capacity. Mm -hmm. Now they're yielding to it, yep. but it, there's something that's that's pressing itself that's not necessarily demonic. And I think that that in and of itself can can really illuminate. I think our understanding of the works of the flesh can it. Yep. Oh. I agree, and I think we would do well while we are uh, biblically based and our theology is drawn from the scripture we would do well not to entirely ignore the voices of those in the psychological community that have brought significant help to people. And Isaacs, Diamond, Young, May, uh, all of these, and while I 
Uh, a lot of his theories are now discredited. Freud, all of these psychologists really believed that there can be elements in the human psyche, the human mind, or if you will, the human soul that splinter mm -hmm. off and are not integrated into the human mind in a healthy way. And then they take possession of the person. So maybe right. you have a traumatic experience back somewhere in life and it, it ends up because you've not dealt with it. It ends up totally seizing control of your mind and the emotions tied to that are so overwhelming that you can't function. And it's not necessarily a demon. It's a very real part of you, but it doesn't look that different from possession in some ways. And that's where we would talk about things like sanctification instead yes. of exorcism and deliverance, right? Yes. Because it's still a work of grace that we need. It's just a different, different kind. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are, uh, what are some of the preternatural signs that people ought to keep an eye out for? Sure. So the, the classic ones, not to go looking for, but keep, yeah, <laughs> we don't want to go demon hunting, <laughs> but, but you know, cause I, I, you get this, I know you do. And we get it here. People will call me and say, Hey, I think there's a demon in my house. And I'm like, well, okay, I'll be over, you know? Uh, so that's kind of what we're talking about. You know, what are the things that people could keep, could keep an eye out for, but not go looking for with a pair of binoculars? <laughs> so first of all, let's define our term. When we talk about preternatural, we're talking about, an ability that would be natural to an angel, perhaps, but would not be natural to a human. So uh, a preternatural sign could be possessing knowledge that you don't have. It, so, for instance, you walk into the room, I've never met you, and but I know your name, I know where you've been, I know what you've been doing. Now, the Holy Spirit can give that gift, but that's not what we're talking about. Right. Um, and another sign would be superhuman strength. Uh, something that's far beyond a person's natural uh, size, ability, station in life. There are a thousand stories out there of some 110-pound woman that was throwing, you know, three full-grown men around like they were Legos, you know. Um, Throw a man like Josh around. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> right, Josh? <laughs> yeah. Super, superhuman strength. Other things that I would say are rare, but I have seen them and they're well established among exorcists are things like levitation, things that defy natural laws. And then beyond that, you know, one thing that a lot of exorcists say and are pretty consistent with is if we're trying to assess whether something is really preternatural in nature, don't just talk to the individual, but talk to their relatives, talk to people that know them and find out what are you seeing, you know, that can help us know, is this just a psychological disturbance or are there really some very unusual things happening around this person? Does the atmosphere change when they're in the room? There can be more subtle things like the temperature changes. Now, I'm not saying you should diagnose possession because it gets cold in the room, but I am saying that if you're in the presence of a demon, it's not unusual for the temperature to change in the room. It's not unusual to have overwhelming smells. Now, that can just be bad hygiene also, right, but it, right. it, it's, it's not unusual to have an, an acrid smell that's suddenly there, you know, a sulfuric smell, things of this sort. So in the house, often where per, if a person is being tormented by a demon in the place that they live also, it's not uncommon for things to be moving around on their own, lights to be flashing. Now, it's good to activate your inner skeptic. So if the lights are flickering in your house, before you assume it's a demon, call an electrician, 
you know, make, right. make sure you don't have a wiring issue that's going to burn your house down in the middle of the night. Uh, but for instance, not that long ago, there was, there was somebody that I prayed with that, that God really helped that the power went out in their whole house, but the TV stayed on for like five minutes that they're sitting really? there still watching TV while it's totally dark in the house. Uh, you know, they had things moving around. They had shadowy figures appearing in the house at random moments. These are signs that are consistent with uh, a diagnosis of demonic influence, demonic intrusion, infestation, whatever words we want. How much of the stuff that you're researching is more specific to the to a person as opposed to uh, our good friend, Father Quay, and he who who's expertise is literally hauntings like houses being haunted when i first heard that that was like an expertise i thought man i i am so ignorant it's like i, I went onto a battleship and realized that there's a whole lot more than just the guns on top like there's a whole boat there with a bunch of stuff in it you know um so you know i just curious about that sure so my my arena is more as it relates to the individual. So for instance, the literature review that I'm doing currently, I've titled The Psychology of Demonization. So we're looking at how demonic entities specifically affect the human mind. However, when you get into that, you do become aware of what some people call hauntings of paranormal or preternatural activity inside homes. And, and I would say that frequently, if somebody is being consistently daily harassed by a demonic power, you are going to often see things happening in their house as well. Um, so mm. I think though, now that's not always, but I would say it's often. So I think it's wise if somebody goes through deliverance, either for the minister or at least uh, the the head of the household to perform some type of house cleansing as well. Have you have you observed in in your both in what I'll call field work because you're working on the degrees and this would be everything in the past twenty years when you discovered they could swim the ocean. Um, uh, the field work and the research. Have, have you discovered that if something like that's happening to the person, um, and there's something taking place in you know uh, maybe in the house. But right. are other people, because you said talk to the family members, yep. do, do the other people around the person perceive usually? Now, if the lights are going on and off, that's objective. Sure. You know? uh, but how often do you think people around the, the demonized perceive what's happening outside of a negative attitude or something? You know, There are degrees of demonization. And when that is, when a person is demonized at a very high degree, you know, similar to what we would call possession or something of that sort. People in their circle know, typically, I think. It's not uncommon for somebody to feel sick to their stomach when they're in their presence. They get suddenly angry and they don't know why. Um, they have things that just seem to go wrong when they're there uh, with that person. Now, let me say this. we got to be careful that we're not seeing things where they're not. And that's one of the dangers. We don't want to go on a witch hunt, so to speak. Yeah, no Salem witch trials, right? Yeah, when you get into this. But frequently, the people in that person's immediate circle, they have a definite sense that something is not right. I mean, I there there's a lady that I took through deliverance a, a couple years ago that me and her husband had never had a conversation about what was happening with her before that. And he wasn't present when she reached out for help. But when I reached out and talked to him immediately, he knew exactly 
He knew that something was going on, even though he had no understanding of demonic type activity. And immediately he says, I really hope you help my wife. Something's not been right for a long time there. So I, that's another thing I was going to ask you. When when these things, um, demonic activity, just as an umbrella term, how often is this amongst the unchurched as opposed to the people in the church? You know, I think that's a tough question because our interactions as pastors, while we right. are interacting with the unchurched, our deeper conversations are often happening with people once they start coming to church, right? Right. So right. I think demonic activity is very prevalent among the unchurched, but here's some for instance. So Pablo Batari is a charismatic uh, deliverance minister. He pioneered the deliverance minister alongside uh, Carlos Anacondia. Uh, okay. Batari says that a million people came through their deliverance tent in Argentina in uh, through Anacondia's deliverance tent, and he personally ministered to 30,000 of those and he said 90 plus percent of them would have identified themselves as Christians. Now, when you say that, somebody out there is immediately going to start attaching meaning to what I just said that is not consistent with what I mean by it. But the point is that in their understanding, they're at church, they have some type of faith in Christ, and they have came to a pastor seeking help. So, I think that demonization is more prevalent among the unchurched, obviously, but we right. may see it more among the churched because that's who's coming to us. That's who we deal with. I mean, even Paul talks about the messenger of Satan sent to torment him. Yes. So, you know, you could you could you could say that Paul in that sense was under a consistent demonic affliction, even <laughs> though he's not demonized in any way whatsoever. Right. Right. Another thing that's worth noting, Francis McNutt, who was Roman Catholic turned charismatic, uh, McNutt does not assign a, a, a numeric value to how many people he's ministered to, but he says of all those he's taken through deliverance, two-thirds of them had spirits of trauma, meaning that there was a traumatic root to what they're experiencing. What that would tell me is that career counselors are going to be encountering people who have some level of demonization operating in them that entered through trauma. Now, yeah. not everyone's traumatized is demonized, obviously. Right. But there may be a much higher incidence than we would expect with that. Yeah. <clears throat> so my question is this, all right. Um, we're kind of in the neighborhood of what I was quite getting at the question on the paper. And um, so uh, obviously a Christian cannot be possessed, correct? Agreed. Okay. Because, I mean, I know we have this conversation all the time. Um and uh, obviously, I haven't here. Like the question I had was, can a Christian be demonized? But could you go into further definition of like what what that exactly is? Sure. So it's a loaded question in some ways because here's the trouble: is all of our listeners have their own idea of what we mean when we when we ask that. So let's unpack the word possessed. When we talk about possession, what I am saying when I say that is that the spirit has moved into the place of leadership in that person's mind so that they are no longer fully in control of their thoughts, actions, activities. Demon possession implies a loss of control at, at, at least specific moments. I interviewed the division head of Children's and, and Adolescent Services at Valley Behavioral Health in Arkansas back a while, and this is what he said to me. I asked him, does demonic possession exist? And he said, probably not. And then he said, but if it did, it would be the, the complete surrender of choice. 
that was very interesting to me that from a psychological perspective, he's saying, I doubt it, but if possession exists, it would be the person giving up their right to choose their own free will. Like Judas. Like Judas. Yes. You've yeah. surrendered your will to a demon in a very real and substantive way. That is a hallmark of possession. The signs of loss of control in the body or, or things having the atmosphere is secondary. However, if we're looking at when, when you read the, the, the wide range of authors on demonization, some are going to call temptation a certain level of demonization, right? So just that demon is not controlling you, but it is introducing thoughts to your mind that would be appealing to you. And you're having to ward that off so that James says, submit yourself therefore unto God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Uh, another degree of demonization using this terminology would be oppression. So there's nothing inside you, but you are externally under attack. You may be getting physically ill. So for instance, I remember going to preach the gospel somewhere one time and I just lost my voice, right? I had no reason to have lost my voice, but I couldn't speak. That, that can be an oppression. It's, it's an external attack that is very real. It's very focused. Like if you're walking down the road and a bunch of thugs just suddenly beat you up, you're being oppressed by those people, but they don't control your checkbook. They don't control your marriage or any of these things. But nonetheless, they've had a very real effect on you. We can call a demonic attack like this an oppression that is focused and real. But some people use the word demonization synonymously with oppression, right? Then beyond that, there's, there's obsessions, which is also a psychological term. So your thoughts are just ultra focused on a specific thing to the exclusion of others that can be though it's not always a type of demonization where you are obsessed i think a lot of people that are that are addicted to pornography just to use an example have a demonic obsession that is in their mind and some yeah. people say well, they should just stop it well many of them would actually love to stop it they they have a desire to quit but even when they cut that habit off from their life they find that the obsession does not go away. In, we can talk about the psychology of addiction, or we can call this a degree of demonization in some ways. Does that make sense? And then possession, yeah, makes... the far end, you've surrendered your choice, and now this spirit is in control of your life. Most exorcists agree. Charismatics would be the outliers on this. Most exorcists that are not from the charismatic camp agree that to be possessed, you have to willingly agree to be possessed at some point you voluntarily submit your will to that process at some stage in the game so with saying that <clears throat> is it possible to accidentally do that then you know what i mean you, you know what i'm asking to to accidentally submit your will right i want to say yes and no so you can come in union with the devil uh without being fully conscious of what you've done in a moment Right. But when we're talking about possession, we're not talking about a demonic attack that hits you in a moment. We're talking about a prolonged experience. Like if you read just some possession stories, I mean, lengthy accounts. Uh, I I submit this, this book with fear and trepidation, but go read Hostage to the Devil by Malachi Martin, right? Oh, yeah. Martin's perfect and, possession stuff. Yeah. yeah. And start to read the process of somebody becoming possessed. And you'll find this was not a one-time thing. That So there, there is a, an increased awareness of something that is wholly other, to use Isaac's nature, or words that is with you. And at some point, the individual agrees to let that spirit take control. And the reason they do that 
is because while we focus a lot of times on the torment aspect of possession, people that are possessed receive gifts from their possessing entity as well. You That's receive right. abilities that and we don't we don't talk about that a lot of times, but some people are willing to be possessed because they get sex, they get power, they get money, they they have the ability to control other people. There are gifts that come with demonization, just like there's torment that comes with demonization. And T. Craig Isaac says it very well. It is not hard to exorcise a demon. What is hard is to get the person's will to agree that they do not want the gifts they have received through their demonization. That's probably one of the reasons it takes so long to have an actual right of exorcism. Yes. Yeah. A year and a half or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because we talk about the gifts, I mean, you know, I, I say it tongue in cheek, but we, you hear about the the twenty seven club. People learn how to play the guitar, you know, and then it's because the devil gave them the gift, you know. Yeah. They sold their soul to the devil, all that stuff. You know, we we hear about that often, you know. Exactly. So I don't think anybody becomes possessed by accident, okay. but I do think that we may unintentionally involve ourselves in some things that subject us to demonic harassment without fully understanding what we're doing in some cases. So, There's been a, a lot of kids that play with a Ouija board not knowing what they were opening themselves to. Right. Um, so along the still the same vein, you know, there's, so I don't know if we're working semantics here, but there, there's been, you know, a lot of cases where there's pastors, there's people like that, that, that are classified as possessed. Would you say that they're not necessarily possessed or we're just using a different word like we're talking about here? First of all, I would not say that being a pastor means you are in submission to Jesus Christ. Sure. So I don't think vocation equals standing before God. True. That's true. Is that fair Good enough? Point. Yeah, absolutely. So there's lots of pastors that have abused their office in, in tragic ways, right. including getting involved in the occult, uh, having affairs, being in long-term prolonged sin. So, I would not be willing to say that anyone cannot be possessed by virtue of their office. I would say it's our standing before Christ that offers us protection. Okay, so I'm so we're a fan of this podcast. It's been recent in the past year. It's available pretty much everywhere. It's called The Exorcist Files, okay? Yeah. <clears throat> All right, The Exorcist Files is pretty much like The Adventures of Odyssey, written by <laughs> the Files of an Exorcist, okay? <laughs> have you had a chance to listen to it? I have. I, I enjoy the Exorcist Files. I mean, I've I've gleaned a lot of it, but I think the biggest thing that I've gleaned, gleaned from that specifically is how specific that the role of us as Christians and more than specifically like the role of ministers, uh, priests, pastors, um, towards uh, not just like they're, they're ministering freedom to the individual. Yeah. Like they're not just, yeah, they're ministering deliverance to that more than they are. The, um, those things i mean because i think sometimes we get caught up in this in this thing to where um we're like we think okay well we got to go fight all the forces of hell mm -hmm. you know in, in, in like one one fell swoop um, but we forget okay well they have like all these people in bondage and our job is to bring freedom to them through christ and stuff like that so what are some of the things that you gleaned off of uh listening to the exorcist files now I encourage our listeners if they're out there when they're out there Give a chance to listen to it, okay? You know, listen to it with a blanket or something. I mean, <laughs> but 
Well, I would say, first of all, that I have listened to the Exodus Files, but I've but I've only listened to a few episodes. So Father Daryl may be more okay. equipped than I am to to uh, to to throw out some of those uh, topics for roundtable. I think one thing the Exorcist Files is doing is raising awareness among people of, you know, just how real and how prevalent demonic activity is and how it affects people right inside their homes. You know, um, you do see in one of the very first episodes of the Exodus Files, you see that preternatural aspect that's being presented there. The, the idea that people can possess knowledge they would not have otherwise. Um, another thing I think that's worth noting, and, and Daryl, I want to let you kind of uh, take us where we need to go on Exorcist Files, because I know you you followed a bit more closely than I have there. Um, it's important to remember that some people are being tormented by spirits and they want free, and other people are still very much enjoying their demons and they don't. Right. And I think in right. the ministry of exorcism, or, or of deliverance, whatever language you're wanting to use there, it's important to, to know that deliverance is tied to the gospel. It's never separated. So right. for me, we need to make sure that the people that we're trying to, to bring the power of God to, to have a power encounter and drive out those spirits, they're actually ready to submit to the gospel, that, that there's yeah. a real transformation happening in, in them. Um, but I... Uh, I'm drawing a blank on on Exodus files. Throw me some no, yeah, that, no, That's all right. That yeah, I mean, uh, I may cut that whole thing anyway, Josh. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm just teasing. Just teasing. He's no, if that. if folks haven't listened to the Exorcist files, Father Carlos Martins is an exorcist for the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, and he released I don't know 13 episodes or something. Um, and if you want to get more up to speed with something that's got a dr bunch of dramatization in it, that's very well done. Then you know we'd recommend that you listen to it. Um, and they do a good job of, you know, <laughs> yeah, putting their theology, uh, a lot of theology into it. That's that's the parts you agree with and disagree with. It's all worth discussion. Hundred percent. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I I was thinking more about the the relationship, uh, unless Alex has something else. Um, I do have a question, but I can save it. Whatever. No, go ahead. Go ahead, because I <laughs> I could I could do this for hours. Yeah, go ahead, buddy. So I have a question about authority. Sure. Obviously, you know, uh, Christ gives us gives us that authority. It's his authority. It's not ours. It's not about us whatsoever. So we, we talk often about people that are, you know, are calling against, you know, the, the princes of, 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 of the devils. You know what I mean? That the, yep. the prince of Persia, all these these high level um, different, you know, because we understand there's different levels of demons, different levels of angels. We understand sure. that. You know what I mean? Like, do we uh, personally, we have no authority. I mean. We're, we're made a little lower than the angels. I mean, we, we see it in the scripture. So in ourselves, we have no authority. But what do you, like, where is that line of authority do you think that Christ gives us? Or is it like a, um, is it a sliding scale? Or I don't even know what I'm trying to ask. But what do you, what do you think about how authority that Christ gives us? How, where does that play the role in that? In, in demonology and, and, you know, fighting against regional de uh, demons? Sure. So... Father Ripperger, um, a Roman Catholic exorcist, very adequately, very insightfully explains that while it's popular to talk about taking authority over a demon, taking authority is is never a positive thing. We either have authority or we don't. 
And so we exercise the authority that we have. In my mind, to answer your question about how you deal with regional spirits or how you don't deal with them, goes back to what I said a moment ago, and that is that my level of authority, I believe, is tethered to the gospel. So if I am called to bring the gospel to a particular region, I am authorized to push back the demonic powers that are in that that region, meaning that whether that is a, a, a area of 10 people or 100 or 1,000, as the gospel expands, we push back the powers of darkness. But there is simply no New Testament um, passage that even begins to indicate that a believer should be trying to take authority over a regional demon. In fact, you know, in the book of Daniel, we see that that Gabriel comes in or that Michael comes and fights against the prince of Persia, but you don't see Daniel binding the prince of Persia. The, Daniel is focused on, in the Old Testament, Daniel's focused on his prayer, his supplication to God on behalf of the people of Israel, but then the angelic host are taking care of this. Right. Deliverance and exorcism in the New Testament is confined really to individuals. So in, in my estimation, if we are witnessing to somebody, if we are ministering to somebody, the gospel of Jesus, we have full authority to cast out any demon that is holding them captive. But I think it would be simply foolish to go and try to go after demonic powers. And I think that Jude is intentionally giving us a check when he says, even Michael the archangel, when he contended with Satan over the body of Moses, dared not bring a railing accusation, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. I've encountered what I perceive to be territorial powers in numerous instances. And, and my perception, at least, is that if I need to encounter those in the course of the gospel, in the course of bringing Christ to the unsaved, I have the authority to, 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 to rebuke them and back them out of the domain God has entrusted to me. Right. But I don't have the authority to just go chasing them. I would find that to be very foolish in my opinion. Also, this is not a question, but this is just uh, something that in the conversation with Father Daryl, in one point in time, we um, got in the thought process of, do you think that the language, um, the English language and how we talk about it, like, okay, we're talking about the demonic this, the demonic that, um, is kind of hard for people to like really swallow and understand, uh, considering some of the postmodern thought that's pretty predominant in our culture. I think language always has its limitations. And when you start reading the writings of various exorcists and deliverance ministers, you see this real attempt to find language that works better. One of those is the shift from the translation of the Greek word daimonizomai to actually every reputable Bible translation translates that possessed by a demon or oppressed by a demon. ESV uses oppressed in some cases. There's another phrase that's translated have a demon in some places, but the, there's been a push among deliverance ministers to just transliterate daimonizomai and use the word demonized in, instead. I think in some ways, though, language has its limitations for everyone, but my personal opinion is that we face those limitations in the church more than we do with unchurched people, because in our society, there is a keen awareness of spiritual activity right now. I mean, just 
for instance, in 1990, there were only 8,000 practitioners of Wicca nationwide. By 2018, there were 1.5 million. Uh, for reference, there were only 1.4 million Presbyterians in, the, in 2018. You're more likely to meet a witch on the street than you are to meet a Presbyterian on the street in the United States of America these days. So the, the concept of spirituality, demonic powers, paranormal, paranormal activity is so normal to our culture that actually I think in many ways the church is having to catch up a little bit uh, and, and then reframe in terms of a biblical worldview what this means. I don't know if I asked yeah. your question sufficiently or not. No, 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 that, 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 that hits it pretty well. I mean, because I think, uh, so on the point you hit on what you were saying is a lot of the issues is like long-term for some of these Christian people that are dealing with these demonized issues or whatever, it's like the lack of discipleship in the whole process. Like they're not catechized. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. So it's easy for them when they don't really understand what they're doing, you know, to just fall into something really crazy or to give themselves to something dumb. Correct. hundred percent. And this is not new to our day. So in the, in the world of the new Testament in the first century, as I mentioned earlier, the word diamond uh, is being used for angel, demon, energy, all kinds of ways. But the New Testament uses it exclusively to refer to demonic activity. So yeah, I mean, Socrates talks about his, yes. his uh, diamond instructing him. Yeah, he does. Yeah. So it's not really? it's not uh -huh. new to have to bring biblical language into a culture that views it differently. But it is important to discipleship. Vital. Well, I think that's I what something like favorite, the exorcist files is, you know, and is having the kind of impact that it does is because, you know, he, um, if I remember it correctly, he said he was asked to start, you know, doing some information about this because it's just not known. And since, you know, um, like even in the ACNA right now, they were, they spent the last several years working over what they're going to do for what's called SSPI the Society for Special Pastoral Intervention, mm -hmm. which is all kinds of deliverance ministry. And what, uh, what looks like, <laughs> yeah, what looks like is going to happen and is happening is that we're going to have an order of exorcists in the province. Right. And um, in Anglican polity, it's very comparable to Roman Catholic polity in this regard, is that to do the solemn rite of exorcism, you need to get permission from the bishop, but the it's in, in the Anglican world. It's not because the permission from the bishop means you'll have more spiritual power. That that belief is present um, among some groups, right. and I mean, if the bishop is going to sign off on you doing something, then you, you want to believe that there's a you know. It's like the charismatic guys that get around. Well, the apostle comes to town, more angels are present. Well, how much more a bishop if we're going to talk in that, those categories? Nonetheless, the 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 um, I think it's the book of occasional services, Alex, uh, that we have in there is a, a, lit, a list of all kinds of stuff, house blessings, you know, uh, starting new ministries. But the chapter on exorcism, the page says, see your bishop. Because what they're doing is they're making it more difficult, like you can't just readily do it because you want to make sure that it's an actually a demon, that's actually a demon that. You know, you're not um, getting into a uh, – I was at a meeting one time. I'll put it like this. I was at a meeting one time where this uh, this person began to contort on the floor and pretended to have a demon and did not. 
And there were lots of people who had gathered around the individual and was commanding it to come out in the name of Jesus. And after about 15, well, I mean, I was standing there for a couple minutes. And then after about a while, put it that way, I went and got somebody else. And I said, what in the world is going on here? And come to find out there were some other guys standing in the back who said, oh, yeah, this happens, you know, every couple of weeks. I'm like, this is not a demon. This is some mental illness. And these people are up here standing around trying to drive something out at an altar call that's not there. She needs to go, the person needs to go get some treatment. Um, so one of the reasons that we have that, uh, that, that requirement, uh, unless your bishop tells you otherwise. So, for, for example, my bishop, uh, the rules are, I trust you guys, do what you need to do. But there are many others in the Anglican world where you need to get permission from the bishop because they don't want people doing something they have no business doing. And I give you, I give you a, a, an example. You don't let anybody fly an airplane who's not a trained pilot. Mm -hmm. So why would you give the care of a soul to someone who doesn't know what they're doing? And I think this is one of the things that, that has to be kept in a pastoral perspective, because if we're talking just about authority, you know, the Lord was pretty clear that the least in the kingdom it was greater than John the Baptist. Right. So the least person in the kingdom as part of the body of Christ is exalted above all powers and principalities. Sure. But authority is not really what we're talking about when it comes to things like this. As much as as important as it is, we're talking about are you going to do damage? You know, I mean, when people, somebody asks me for um, what I think I was how we said it earlier, they say they have a demon. They probably don't. When I get those questions from people, I've, I ask them and they want exorcism. Do you have a counselor? Are you going to the doctor? Like, what are the other things that you've got going on that are leading you to believe this? You know, and I, and I think those are the kinds of things to keep in mind. Um, because otherwise you end up chasing demons around every bush and they're not there. Sure. Uh, but I, I think that the bigger issue we're dealing with culturally now, one of the bigger issues is the amount of demonization amongst church people that is the consistent barrages of temptations yeah. and the oppressive moods that they're always giving into. And, and I think uh, I give you two examples and, and we can kind of kick this around a little bit because I think they may be interesting um, to talk about. The first is in the seventh ecumenical council, the council commanded, it's interesting what they did here. The council commanded the uses of icons, sacramentals and these kinds of things, mm -hmm. and that those, those um, icons and other things like them needed to be rightly venerated. And they did this because of the iconoclast controversy, so the destruction of the images, the destruction of the pictures, the defacing of everything. And it's always been of note of interest to me that demons react to holy things. Mm -hmm. And so what's going on other than the theological belief that they shouldn't be present that is creating space for a greater diabolic activity? Uh, like that whole dynamic is very interesting. And I think it deserves more, more uh, consideration. And the second is something very simple, like the Ten Commandments. And Josh, you mentioned catechesis. The commandments are pretty clear. And then the Sermon on the Mount obviously expands them. So how many Christians on a weekly basis live in direct disobedience to the commandments, but then still say that they're freed by the Spirit of God? Yeah. When in fact, because they continually fail to be at church on the Lord's Day, they're, they're, in, they're engrossed with lust in their hearts, 
They're going around coveting things that don't belong to them. It's not just the temptation, but the diabolic influences that they're giving into that are fostering more of these destructive issues. And I think those two things right there are easy catalysts to start thinking about some of the stuff that's going on. And I think, you know, uh, Robbie, that's where your research is, is, I think, one of the ways it's going to be applicable. I don't want to speak to how it's going to go for you in the future with it. But I think dealing with the formation side, you know, um, the early church did all of the deliverance before people got baptized. And now, because we, we're coming out of this cessationism yeah. and we're coming out of this anti-supernatural epoch of human history in the West, where none of that stuff was real, we're doing all the deliverance post-baptism. Right. So, you know. Cyril tells us that in the 300s, when someone was baptized, they would reach their hand toward the West and declare, I renounce the devil. I renounce his powers. I renounce his angels. And there, what you're right, there was this concept of people were consciously renouncing the powers of darkness. But in general, in evangelical circles, where, where I'm still, you know, pretty, pretty heavily in, salvation is, hey, pray this prayer. And we baptize people that have very limited understanding of what their faith even means at that point. Many that still have things that they should have repented of, should have renounced, should have laid them aside. And you're right, it does become very complicated. Um, an another thing, and this is this is kind of outside my purview. This would be more in the realm of, of uh, Father Quay's stuff. But something I've observed is that the desecration of the holy, or maybe the the disappearance of the holy, mm. I think is wow. creating a haven for the demonic in our culture. So, for instance, we used to wow, understand man. concept. You know what, you just, what you just said was that the taking down of the Ten Commandments in public places is not about uh, separation of church and state. Sure. It's very, it's very heavy stuff. I got to um, think on that, man. That's good. Lots of people, especially in the evangelical world, will say concerning their church house, well, it's just a building. It doesn't matter. Man, whatever happened to the concept of consecrated space, sacred space? Right. Yes, it's a building, but it's not just a building. Jacob wakes up and says, surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. This is none other but in the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so I just want to throw this out and then we'll move on past it because it would be a whole podcast in itself. But <laughs> these ideas that are very prevalent among Pentecostals, that's my people that I'm talking about there, that nothing material really matters. Oil is just oil. We use it, but we don't know why. Um, talk about holy water. We'll call you a kook. We send prayer cloths to people, but then we educate them on how that cloth means nothing. This idea that the spiritual world is separate from the material world is Gnosticism. It, it, is, it is Gnosticism repackaged that the spiritual realities cannot manifest themselves in material ways. And we're terrified of what, what it means if they do. But if we are taking dominion over the earth, then it, our, the presence of the Ten Commandments, the presence of our churches, the presence of baptismal waters, the presence of sanctified, consecrated oil, these things should matter. They, they should make a difference 
as we occupy for the king, as, as the kingdom of God takes over the kingdoms of this world, these are tangible signs of what God is doing. And the absence of the holy does not mean nothing. It, it, it means that darkness is welcome to move in and occupy spaces that, that where, where the holy is removed. Well, like the statues to Molech, right? All the stuff that's been going yep. up here in the past, what, five years? Yep. That would have been unthinkable. Sure. You know, 15, 20 years ago. And yeah. I, I just want to clarify uh, Gnosticism uh, was a heresy. So <laughs> that is correct. I want to know that. <laughs> but it, it, it is just, we talk about that all the time. You know what I mean? About how matter matters. I mean, you know, we talk about the sacraments and sacramentals and all this stuff. God uses things. Jesus became a man, a physical man, and there there is no separation. Like for me personally, you know, that is why I am where I am spiritually today. That's my journey has brought me here because of the Eucharist, because it is the matter of Jesus is there. It's not just it's not just a spiritual thing. You know, growing up where I grew up, you know, I always knew that there was something special that was happening in communion. And it wasn't always portrayed that to me. It wasn't always told that to me. But I knew there was something special because Jesus said, this is my body. And I didn't have the theology for that. I never did. But we understand with, with the matter, you know, with Christ, with his incarnation, with all living an incarnational life, we understand that matter completely matters. I think yeah, one of my favorite, garment, right? Yeah. yeah. I think one of my favorite points that uh, from the exorcist files, kind of going back to forward, what you're talking about, hold on. Hold on, I got you. No, don't worry. Not going anywhere crazy. No, well, what I was saying was how um, <clears throat> Jesus becoming the incarnation in physical flesh um, by itself is exorcistic, and how the truth in that aspect is exorcistic, exorcistic towards all diabolical influences. Amen. Truth is exorcistic. Yes, that's right. That's right. Within that, let me let me throw out just the simplest thing that can ever be said. Um, if you're dealing with an unbeliever who is manifesting a demon, a great place to start is with the gospel, right? Uh, yeah. I remember in a particular service, uh, two people in a row, they're manifesting, they're jerking up and down. One is literally pounding their head off the concrete floor. And in one case, I was asked to come help. In another case, I invited myself to come help. <laughs> and in both cases, I, I, I leaned down, rebuked the spirit, tell it to be quiet and uh, start talking to the individual, and I begin to ask them, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you understand why Jesus came into the world? No, I don't. And so I begin to share the gospel, and as they begin to call out to God in repentance, you know what happened? The Spirit left like that. Instantaneously, right. they're set free without any exorcistic activity because of what you're saying. The incarnation of Christ is in, of, is in and of itself exorcistic. I like that. So when we bring Christ into the individual, in many cases, actually, there's not a lot else that is needed other than in the process of discipleship. Yeah, they're afraid. The demons are still afraid of Jesus. They're still afraid of it. Of course, if they're you, not. You know, that was something, because uh, Josh keeps mentioning the exorcist files. Uh, I only mentioned that was it something... because I had to say where it came from, and I can't take credit for an idea that's not mine. Gotcha. Uh, something that they mentioned in there that I that I had never heard of, and I thought, well, that's that's really good. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't. You know, it's one of those things that's so blatantly obvious, and you think, why didn't I ever think of this? Um, but in all of the exorcist cases he's been involved in, 
The demons never blaspheme. They never speak the name of the Lord Jesus in a profane way. And I thought that, that is a very significant insight because they're that afraid of him. I think this is, uh, you know, the whole cat, catechesis of formation side and uh, what you were describing with, you know, saved by confession alone, which is not faith and not the same, is the demons have absolute, they, they have beyond faith. They have absolute knowledge that cannot be corrupted. There's no way for them to not know the truth. They know it clearly, and they believe it implicitly. There's nothing about that. Like they don't believe that somehow they're going to win their fight and their rebellion. They don't believe that. They know it's not true. Right. Which is why James says what he does about faith and works. So it's not a works-based righteousness. James is calling out the contrast that Paul was being accused of, that Paul refutes himself You know, in Galatians 5 and things. But it speaks to the way that the gospel is very truly not adequately presented. And um, I think the, the, the absence of the holy, um, and we're going to do a podcast on, on not that in particular, but maybe we'll work into it now that I'm thinking about it. But we want to do one on uh, realism, then nominalism, and then nihilism. Mm -hmm. Nothing means anything. I mean, things have no meaning unless you want it to. And, and I think it's because we've lost the sense of realism that was the bedrock philosophy in the time of scripture. You know, to go into the temple was to go into heaven in the old covenant, you know. Right. Um, whereas now we would say, well, no, it's just a building. What? No, it's the, the thing, the matter, the stuff participates in some reality beyond itself. And people will say, well, I don't believe that. You do in all probability, because how do you treat the American flag? It's, it's participating in something beyond the fibers that it's composed of. Um, you know, and so I think when we're talking about spiritual things, we're talking about sacramentals, the sacraments themselves, we're talking about um, you know, deliverance ministry. These, are, these things go beyond our, uh, our everyday articulations because they're rooted in a biblical worldview that we just, we've got to recapture. And I don't see how we do that quickly, but I think it's the task that's in front of us. One of the tasks in front of us. Yeah. Um, last question we've got for you here, Robbie, as we're taking up plenty of people's time and your time. Um, what have you noticed in the research that, like, two th two things specifically? What was what's been the most surprising thing, and then what's been the most universal thing amongst all these different? Uh, demonologist if you will so one of the one of the things i guess that surprised me the most is that there is not actually widespread agreement that the name of jesus is sufficient to cast out demons um mm. so uh, and i'm not i'm not characterizing writers in such a way ripperger for instance actually says Jesus said, in my name, you shall cast out demons, but that doesn't mean you can cast out all demons in his name. Now, when you get to, when you get into what he's talking about, he's saying that some require the authority of the church, the grace of, uh, you know, of, of ordination of the priesthood, things of this sort. And, and there's, there's different logic to what he says. Amorth talks about, you know, the intercession of saints and things of this, this sort. 
whereas others are going to say no it is it is exclusively the name of Jesus and and by the way I'm going to follow on the it is the name of Jesus that that casts out demons although I can concede that what they're saying is your station in life may grant you a place of authority that not everybody walks in. I'm not going to totally disagree with that, but I was. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't cast out something. The Lord doesn't give you permission to cast out. Precisely. Because even when you, even when you quote, quote, are driving it out, it's not you. That's right? exactly yeah. right. I, I, I think I got you. Okay. So, so I was a little surprised that everyone does not agree that it is ultimately the name of Jesus that drives out all demons. Uh, I found that surprising, and I'm still unpacking exactly what I think about all of that, to be honest. Um, something else that surprised me is that a lot of charismatics do not use the word deliverance the same way that Catholics and Anglicans use it. So among all Catholic and Anglican authors I've read, the word deliverance is distinct from exorcism, right? That That is, yeah. it, some would call it minor exorcism. Uh, it's for cases that are less severe, uh, things of that sort. Um, and basically anyone could do a deliverance, but not anyone could perform an exorcism. Among charismatic authors, the words are used synonymously. There is no difference. I did not find so far... So far, I have not found a single charismatic author that uses the word exorcism and deliverance distinctly from each other, but I've I've not found a single Roman Catholic or Anglican author that uses them synonymously. So I think that's worth knowing when you're reading the literature to understand what the person is saying. You do need to know what faith background they're coming from because everyone's not using the words the same. As an Anglican priest now, I can tell you, yes, that's true. Okay. I, I noticed that a few years ago, several years ago, doing the reading. I was reading something, and I thought, oh, there's a difference. Sure. At least in this paradigm, there's a difference. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh, last question, and this is from a listener who who uh, threw a question to us. And I, I made a, a casual reference about the correlation between the unclean and the old covenant and unclean yeah. spirits and the new covenant. And I said, go, go look it up. You know, do some research. Be a Bible moth about it. And somebody threw the question out to us. I would just like to hear more about that. So <laughs> I thought, you know, this is the first time we've had an official almost demonologist uh, on the uh, on the podcast with us. So <laughs> would you would you like to, to tackle that for a minute? Yeah, gladly. Um, very, very quickly. Part of the last question I didn't answer there just real quick is that the thing that's consistent across all faith traditions is that emotional healing is essential within deliverance or exorcism. Even if someone goes through a full exorcism, it's wise to get them some counseling, help them work through that because trauma is a very real aspect of demonization. So you yeah. can't divorce emotional healing from deliverance. That's that's something that's consistent across all. In terms of clean, unclean, without a doubt, um, the phrase unclean spirit, that pneuma akatharta, is rooted in Old Testament ideals of what it means to be unclean. So let's read just one of those passages. Leviticus 10.10. 10. Uh, this is the passage where Nadab and Abihu have just died for offering strange fire to God. And Moses um, 
Moses says, uh, okay, verse eight, Leviticus 10, verse eight. And the Lord spake unto Aaron saying, do not drink wine nor strong drink, drink you nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and that you may put difference between holy and unholy and between clean and unclean. So the phrase, the word unclean is used a hundred times in the book of Leviticus alone. Wow. The whole the whole concept of uncleanness was, was set forth to talk about the things that separate someone from the house of God and the people of God. So if you're unclean, whether through your fault or through no fault of your own, you are temporarily separated from the house of God and the people of God. Bring that forward into the New Testament, and you'll understand the Old Testament. People can get unclean through sin, or they can become unclean through burying a loved one, through any number of things. In the New Testament, those with an unclean spirit, they're isolated. They're cut off from the house of God. They're cut off from the people of God. They're cut off in many ways from God himself. The isolation is very real, and so they've turned internal. They've become destructive because they cannot touch what's holy. Because if something that is unclean touches something that is holy, the holy thing then becomes unclean. Unclean. Think about now the the influence of unclean spirits. Yes. Who into who press people to disengage from the life of the church. Yes. Mm. That would be a yeah. whole conversation in itself. So yeah, if you're being pushed to cut yourself off from the house of God and the people of God, that is the activity of an unclean spirit. Wherever we put it in degrees of demonization, that's the work of an unclean spirit. Yeah. Mm. Can I can I say something as we wrap up? If we can get like a, from one of you guys, just a disclaimer about the dangers and warnings of, of messing with this stuff. Yeah, that's right. Don't trifle. <laughs> don't, yeah, don't, don't, don't just go playing with demons. Right. Um, and, and a whole nother conversation is for the church, especially there are legal ramifications involved. There's medical ramifications involved. There have been people that foolishly. So the other day I, I just read a, a dissertation last night that documented something like 20,000 people that had been injured psychologically or physically through exorcism. That is a sobering and shocking yeah. statistic. By the way, these are practices that every exorcist I know would condemn, right? But they've, they've happened. Why are they happening? Because people that don't know what they're doing go and they and they try to dive into this and just frankly if you go to casting a demon out of somebody and it starts cussing you and talking about your mama and trying to physically attack you you can forget that you're dealing with the demon and get too rough with that person and in deliverance ministry we need to always remember there is a human being that we are trying to liberate through the power yeah. of jesus and Preserve that the demon, on the other hand would love to hurt that person so that's right yeah be cautious it's always better to get counsel than to just assume you know what you're doing, I think. Look, when I can't pronounce a phrase in Greek or uh, uh, some arbitrary theological phrase in German, I don't just pretend I know what it means and how to say it. I call the guy who knows. You know, and I think this is the kind of thing with this stuff, too. Um, we should not assume that because we're in the body of Christ, we should go around exercising powers and authorities. Um, if you feel the Lord's calling you into this kind of ministry, find the people who know about it and, and learn from them. 
and listen to their counsel. If they say, hey, kid, take a break, take a breather, hold off a little bit, shadow me for a couple of years, but pay attention to that advice. We do that for everything else. But somehow in this, we just this is one of the reasons they're, they're want to make this an order in the ACNA is because by making it an order and setting up the education requirements for it, you start to weed out people who are chasing yeah. the thrill. And that's an important point. Um, is it possible that it cuts off people who have a gift who could be involved? It is possible, but is it the, the statistical probability that you're going to reduce that 20,000 abuse number? Yes, that is much more insistent. So, um, and I would love to continue guys, but we are, we are out of time. So. Time. So that's, that's, uh, that's all we have for today. I'm Josh. Thank I'm you, out. Professor Robbie. Appreciate you. Yep. Thanks, Robbie. We'll see you Go guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.